0: Baptism. We talked about baptism, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, So we talked about the church and one of the signs of the covenant of the church. And so today we're going to talk about uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for this day. Thank you for another Monday that we get to come together uh, for this class and study your word, what your word has to say about all of these wonderful things. And, Father, I pray that as we learn, Father, you would help us by your Spirit to put them to practice and put them to use in our own lives. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, I gave a brief summary of baptism last week, and then we, today we're doing the Lord's Supper. And what's the other word for Lord's Supper? Is there... Communion. Communion, right. So, yeah. Um, so where did these things come from? Where did the Lord's Supper come from? Where do we get it in the Bible? Well, uh, John chapters 13 through 17 is essentially where we get the, the first Lord's Supper from. And uh, that whole section is devoted to a summary of Jesus' words to his disciples at this first Lord's Supper. And uh, it was a Passover feast. Uh from the get-go, and uh, that was the night that the sacrificial lamb was supposed to be slain. And it's not a coincidence that the night before, celebrating the, the slaining of a lamb with the actual lamb going to be slain the next day. So, <clears throat> so instead of celebrating this Passover with their families, which is usually what they did, this is a family ordinance, uh, they celebrated it with Jesus who is the head of this new family. And so the symbolism here is very clear. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, that uh, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. So obviously the Passover meal, the Lord's Supper, uh, all points to the true lamb that was slain, and that was Christ. And at the original Passover in the book of Exodus, uh, which happened... The night of Israel's release from Egypt, uh, the men were required to stand with their belts fastened and their sandals on their feet, their staffs in their hands, and they shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Exodus twelve, eleven. So God would pass over their homes, sparing the firstborn son, because of what? How what would make God the, the death angel pass over that home? What? The blood on the yeah, the blood on the doorposts. Right, the blood on the lintel. That's right. And so that's the Passover. But the Lord's Supper was different. So instead of eating standing up like they were supposed to do in Exodus, what were they doing instead? They were eating and drinking sitting down. So that's different. Uh, why were they sitting down instead of standing up? Why do you think? Well, not yet. Jesus hadn't been had not been sacrificed yet. God is there and not outside trying to kill them. That's a good guess. It's a good guess. Not quite. So, why was why was Israel told to stand and eat the meal in Exodus? If you remember this right, they need they needed their belts on. They needed their shoes on. They need to be standing. They need to be ready. Exactly ready for what? To get out of there, yeah, it was time to go. Yeah, it was, we were ready to get out of there. So there were slaves uh, about to escape from bondage of Egypt, right? But Jesus' sacrifice wasn't like that. It was about to bring a different victory about, and that was a victory over Satan and over sin. And so instead of escaping a kingdom, escaping Egypt, they actually <laughs> would be going into a new kingdom as ambassadors, and they would bring God's treaty Uh, to the nations, and so they sat down, and why did they sit down? Jesus explains it in Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30, he says this, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones of uh, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Y'all heard that? that y'all may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit uh, on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So, wow, they're sitting on thrones, judging. So God has made these guys judges. So anybody else who partakes of the Lord's Supper, um, as Christians, as believers, we're now judges. Right? What are we judging? What do you think we're judging now? huh? It says Israel. Well, uh, yep, you would be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, but the 12 tribes of Israel for us are no more, at least in the old sense. So what are we judging? Ourselves. No, not necessarily. We are discerning the body, but that's, that's different than judging. Judging is like adjudicating cases and bringing verdicts on things, ruling and reigning. So what do, who are we ruling and reigning over? The rest of the world, exactly, y'all got it, the rest of the world. So they would sit and bring judgment to the nations, and they would bring the law to the nations as ambassadors and judges. And the war war against Satan was about to be won in time and on earth at the cross, and God's institutional kingdom was about to burst the wineskins of national Israel. Okay, and one of the most interesting aspects of modern Christianity is that this passage in Luke 22, which gives us exactly what the Lord's Supper means, uh, is virtually never said by pastors who lead communion services. Hardly ever. Um, Jesus says clearly what the purpose of the communion meal is in Luke 22. But I hardly ever hear it. Very little. Right? The words of Christ point directly to conquest and to dominion. Uh, Jesus has given his people a kingdom, he's given his people a table, and he's given them thrones of judgment to sit on. But all we ever hear about in the Lord's Supper is the section from what part of the Bible? 1 Corinthians? Corinthians 11. Yeah, where, uh, where Paul warned the, the Corinthian church about taking the Lord's Supper unworthily. So, in other words, as the modern church has interpreted the meaning, all it is, when you get to the Lord's Supper time in the the service, is the point in the service where you're just supposed to be uncertain about your salvation, and it's time to examine yourself. Now, I'm not negating that, uh, I'm not saying that we should not examine ourselves, of course we should, of course we should discern the body. Uh, We should do everything Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians 11, but... Many of us know that's not the only place where the Lord's Supper is mentioned in the Bible and what its purpose is. Right here in Luke 22, Jesus gives us the explicit meaning of what the Lord's Supper is. And the fact that not many pastors mention what the purpose is out of Luke 22, because of that, Christians don't have the first clue that the Lord's uh, Supper is a celebration meal. It's not a time where you're supposed to look sad and kind of look, try to look at your insides and see where I've sinned against God. I need to repent before I eat this bread and drink this cup of grape juice. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's a celebration meal. They were sitting down and celebrating. Now, look, if you do have unrepentant sin that you're holding on to, please confess it. Repent of it before you take the supper. Um, if you're not discerning the Lord's body properly, we'll get to the, what that means in a second, then absolutely examine yourself. But we should be happy during the Lord's Supper. We shouldn't be dour and sad or just kind of looking at the cup and the bread like this as the first, first Corinthians is read out loud and then, okay, is it time to eat it? Okay. Is it time to drink it? Okay. Okay, we're done. That's, that's not a celebration meal. No, this is the celebration of Jesus launching a new kingdom on the, in the world. And it's a celebration of the transfer of power of, uh, of judgment from the old order, from Israel, from really the whole rest of the world has been ran by whom so far up until Christ? Demons, right? Zeus and uh, Poseidon and, you know, all, we say all these gods are mythical and not real, but you know, they're very real representations <laughs> of demons, um, all of the 70 nations where the, uh, the people at the Tower of Babel dispersed out of, I mean, all of these nations were being ruled by different Elohim, different gods, lowercase g, gods. Um, and now all that transfer of power has been transferred from them because Christ has won over Satan. And now it's getting transferred to Christ's kingdom and to his church. So that's a pretty big reason to celebrate. Now the world is ours. So when we celebrate the Lord's Supper... Uh, in order to remember that. Now, we have very little information on what early church communion services look like. We don't have very much. Now, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in power, Peter preached this to the crowd, and then they did this. Okay, it's Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. When Peter preached, it says, "...they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching." And the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, I think, and I think many commentators agree, that this was the first celebration of the Lord's Supper in Acts 2. And one thing I think is immediately clear from this passage and from others is that the celebration of the Lord's Supper was part of the normal weekly life of the church just as much as all of the other things that are mentioned here. What are some other things that are mentioned in this passage? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, We do that every week, right? Now, we don't have living apostles teach to us, but we do have the Bible, the the, the teaching of the apostles there. Our pastors preach these things to us every week. Uh, Fellowship. We fellowship with each other every Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day comes every week and to the breaking of bread, so and and the prayers. We pray every week. Seems like it makes sense that we break, should break bread every week too, right? Uh, what, what chapter is that? Uh, Acts 2.42. Acts 2.42. So I think the celebration of the Lord's Supper is something that the first century church did on a weekly basis. Okay? Uh, and... You may be wondering why on earth are we talking about this? Well, many churches don't celebrate the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis. Some of them celebrate it once a month. Some celebrate it once a quarter. Some even celebrate it once a year. Um, and, and I'm not saying it's a sin to celebrate it once a month or once a quarter or anything. There's there's no like specific prohibition to uh, bi weekly Lord's Supper or anything. But, you know, I want to try to be as faithful to the Lord and as faithful to the Bible as possible. And uh, if the first century church, guided by the Holy Spirit, uh, did all of these things every week, including taking the Lord's Supper, I think it would be a good idea that we took the Lord's Supper every week. And that's why, you know, at Christchurch we do. And I think at First Milton y'all do too, right? There you go. I think I was one of the first things that was changed at First Milton because of... There you go. Because of that conviction. Absolutely. That's great. So, yeah, I think a weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper is uh, the rule in the Bible. Okay, well, we know, uh, because we've heard 1 Corinthians 11 uh, said to us every single week, we should at least know some of the backstory behind it, right? So we can tell from Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians 11 that there were some people who were abusing the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church. So we know it was a meal. Not a little piece of bread and a little thimble of grape juice. We know that it was a full meal. Like people were eating. Like it was a a lot of bread, a lot of wine. Okay, um, and then uh, <clears throat> because uh, we know it was a meal since people were bringing food, some were drinking until they were drunk, um, and others didn't have any food to eat and they were hungry, and they were out of order. So Paul told them, like, hey, if you're going to come to the Lord's supper. Uh, and, it, and you're really hungry, you need to eat at home first before you come and not eat all of the food here and not give everybody else an opportunity to eat and partake, okay? If, uh, eat at home if you're hungry, and then come, come and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, just, just because Paul told him to eat supper at home beforehand doesn't mean that the Lord's <laughs> Supper wasn't a real supper. Y'all understand that? Uh, so Jesus had celebrated that first supper with, with a full meal at Passover, So Paul was telling them, hey, come with your stomachs full enough not to have your stomach growl when you're there, but don't be so filled with wine when you come that you're already drunk, and now you're partaking of more wine, and then you're acting a fool at Lord's Supper. Okay? No, he wanted an orderly, meaningful celebration. And so in the early church, people got together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Okay, uh, they may not have gotten together at the at the worship service to do it. Uh, many of them met in homes. Now I, mean, I remember this is very the, the early in the church's life. You know they can't just you know buy a property and start a, you know build a church building and no repercussions come from that. No, so uh, you know they were very much the majority <laughs> in the culture. So they met in churches. Uh, they met in some private meeting halls. Um, and, and they got together specifically to celebrate and eat this meal, this, this love feast, agape feast, okay? And they were supposed to recognize the religious nature of the meal. They just weren't supposed to come over and just eat, and then that's it. No, they were supposed to understand what they were doing over there, and it was a celebration. It was a celebration. They were all happy and, and, and joyful in being there. But, you know, contrast to that, the first century, you know, big meal, long table, not only bread and wine, but a lot of wonderful food at the table. Uh, you know, think of Thanksgiving, your typical Thanksgiving Day meal. And now think of the modern church's interpretation of the Lord's Supper. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Wah, wah, wah. Are yeah. we going to start doing that like when the building is built? That's the hope. That's the hope. We're looking to change that. We're looking to actually have... We'll probably still do have the Lord's Supper in a similar way that we do now, but we'll also be celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, on a bigger scale, probably when the new building's done, and we can really lay out some tables and some good bread and wine and food and all that. Is it really illegal to, uh, for children wine? Huh? Is it illegal for children have wine? Uh, the civil government says it's illegal. But it's illegal if your parents... I think your parents have to say it, and it can't be like out in public. Or yeah, well, we'll, get to, we'll get to all that in just a second about the wine stuff. But for now, uh, I just want, I want you to understand that this was a big party. This was a celebration. And the modern church's uh, interpretation of the Lord's Supper looks more like a funeral, doesn't it? It's, it's quiet. Yeah, it's quiet. It's, you see these quiet, dour-faced people you know, swallowing their little grape juice and their little crumbs of bread or their COVID crackers. Uh, You know, they swallow this little thimble full of of wine or even less realistically grape juice uh, from these cups. I mean, getting on the subject of grape juice. I'll go there for a second. (laughs) Think about this. Were people leaving the Corinthian church drunk because they drank too much grape juice? Come on they weren't even invented back then. Right? It, right, right. Dr. Welch was a long time away. That's who invented the the the, the way to ferment grapes without the alcohol. Dr. Welch. Okay. Welch's, y'all heard of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, this is a celebration. Don't you have wine and alcohol at celebrations? Yes. I know. I know you. Well, <laughs> know. your family does. Yes, y'all do. Y'all families do. Yeah, y'all do. So Anyway, all right, so uh, it's a celebration, but the church doesn't make it look like one. It looks really lame, actually. Uh, so the modern Lord's Supper, think about this. The modern Lord's Supper is a symbol, right? Uh, it's a, I'm not talking about the old Lord's Supper. I'm talking about our, the modern church's interpretation of it. It's a symbol of a symbol of a symbol, and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. So first of all, it's a symbolic meal, Right? I mean, there's a wafer or a little cup full of grape juice. That symbolized the Passover meal, right? Mm-hmm. And the Passover meal symbolized Christ's sacrifice, right? So symbol of a symbol of a symbol. But where's the meal in the Lord's Supper? Why aren't, why aren't most churches doing the whole meal on the Lord's Supper? They well, need to take one of those symbols out. And just do the symbol. Just do this is a symbol of that, not a symbol of a symbol of a symbol. Does that make sense? That's bad. Yeah. Uh, why eat crumbs and not loaves? That's why we have bigger pieces of bread now because we've come to this conviction. I mean, this is, to make this look more like a celebration, you just don't eat crumbs at a celebration. Now, granted, I know that when uh, recently the bread pieces have gotten so big that they're hard to wash down. Exactly. That's a problem. So we need bigger cups. <laughs> Maybe we'll get there soon as well. We're not there yet. But that's the idea of, of making real bread and not having these little, you know, things what, that pass as what bread. Original crackers huh? What were the original crackers made of? What? The ones light. before the COVID. Ritz. I mean, they weren't much different than the COVID <laughs> ones. Was like um, premium saltine crackers. Yeah, like little uh, salt. That's what I grew up having. Little saltine crackers. They they break up the little the, the square crackers. Like you had the flu or something, you know. Like that's no, that's not a good depiction of the Lord's Supper. It was a celebration. We eat bread, good bread. You know, sometimes the bread's hit or miss at church. That's okay, but you know, most of the time it's really good, and that's what we want. What's that? Oh, the soup crackers. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, got to get those bread pieces bigger. Some butter would be great, too. But anyway. So uh, I think we're moving in the right direction with that..: All right, so all right, now in the Passover, the head of the household directed the meal in the Old Testament Passover. Um, he was the one that was supposed to answer the children's questions about why we're doing this. What's the point of the meal? And the children participated in the meal. That's, I believe that's very clear in Scripture. They participated in the meal. So they asked questions about it, right? So in today's churches, does the Father really do anything regarding the Lord's Supper? Mm-hmm. Now, he's not over who takes it and who doesn't. Who's over that? <laughs> well, ultimately God, but, but who else? The elders, right. They, they have the power to fence the table for sure. But the father should still be administering the Lord's Supper to his family. But oftentimes, the father doesn't say anything, and the children aren't allowed to participate in the meal, oftentimes. And the reason that people give for this is that children are unable to discern the body of the Lord, like it says to do in 1 Corinthians 11. Okay, so that leads us to the question, what does it mean to discern the body of the Lord? What's that mean? Anybody have a general idea of what that means? We hear that passage every week. Um, no. I don't have it in my notes, but I can turn there. Let me just turn there real quick. Corinthians. Is, is it to like realize that the body of the Lord is not actually there? No, exactly the opposite. So they can't look. Oh, it see. means Hold to on. realize that God's body is there. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Okay, let me find it. Let's Let's see. Yeah. So it says, whoever, therefore, this is verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Now, I can see why some people are dour a little bit. If there's a warning that you might die if you do this the wrong way, I could see why there'd be a little bit of anxiety there. Uh, But verse 31, I'll go on. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, so what does it mean to discern the body of the Lord? Okay, so remember, Paul is fussing at the Corinthians here. Uh, for their Lord's Supper serves being out of order. And, and he says that you ought to recognize the Lord's body in the church. That's what it means to discern the body, to recognize it, to be able to tell it apart. When you discern something, what are you doing? You're looking at it closely. You're being discerning. And so Paul taught that the church is Christ's body. And he used this analogy of a body to teach the idea of a division of labor, right? Your eye doesn't do what your hand does. Your feet, your hands don't do what your feet do, right? We, so there's, there's a division of labor, right? I think I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we wouldn't want to be just a big, giant eye. What would that do? That would do nothing. So, so we are diverse. There's a division of labor in the church. We all have different roles, different callings, uh, the way that the body will be served in all these different ways. And so Paul, guess where Paul taught that? 1 Corinthians 12 one chapter over, right after 1 Corinthians 11, when he had dealt with this subject of the Lord's Supper. So we have to take that neighborhood context of Scripture and apply it here to 1 Corinthians 11. And so this is what he meant when he wrote this in 11.29, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You know, because here's the problem. A lot of people interpret this to mean that children can't recognize the symbolic nature of the Lord's body in the bread. Okay? Basically, the complaint is that, hey, children are not able to recognize the symbolism that this bread represents uh, the body of Christ. Okay? You ever heard that complaint before? Maybe not. I don't know. But I, I, I hear that a lot. But Paul wasn't talking about that. Paul was talking about people's lack of understanding of what the bread symbolizes when he tells them that they're not discerning the Lord's body. I mean, if, if he's going to complain that children can't recognize the bread being God, uh, the body of Christ, why didn't he, why didn't he mention the blood or the, the wine, their failure to discern that being the blood of Christ? He only mentions the body. He didn't mention the blood. So why only the body? Does that make sense? So, I mean, because he wasn't talking about that. He's not talking about the theological weaknesses in children. No, he's talking about the sins of their disruptive parents. That's who he's fussing at. He's fussing at the parents. And so the, the biblical pattern, as seen in First Chronicles 35, verses 10 through 19, I'll say it again, First Chronicles 35, verses 10 through 19, is for the elders to distribute the bread and wine to the households and for the head of the household to give it to the household members. Okay. Now, once again, it was the Levites who determined church membership in the Old Covenant, just like pastors and elders do that today. Thus, the power to administer the sacraments is given to the institutional church. The family does not have the power to give the bread or take the bread away. But uh, but the, church, the family does have the responsibility to at least pass it out to their children and to the rest of the, the household. And so many... Many churches, the local ministers, have replaced the fathers in this celebration, despite the fact that all believers are referred to as priests in First Peter 2.9. And so the children aren't allowed to eat the supper, oftentimes, and yet the Passover was instituted by God to serve specifically as an instructional device for children. And the celebration these days has become the emotional equivalent of a funeral. you think the early disciples in the first century would recognize our Lord's Supper today? Probably not. Probably not. Should the children participate? What did Paul say the celebration referred back to? Well, it referred back to the deliverance of Israel. Remember, they had their belt on, keep your shoes on. God's about to deliver you, so you better be ready to go. Okay, And this is what Paul says about this in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. He says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. That's referring to Israel leaving, uh, leaving Egypt and going into the promised land. They all were under the cloud. What's the cloud referring to, probably? The cloud, that God the cloud Yeah, the cloud that God was leading the people by. And they all passed through the sea. What sea? Red sea? The Red Sea. And the, the, the sea that departed. That's right. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All. Notice it doesn't say some. It says all. You think there were little kids in that crowd? Absolutely. They had to have had another generation of Israelites to actually enter into the promised land, right? Because the first generation were unfaithful and God kept them out of the promised land. So there had to be little kids by then. Uh, look at and verse 3 says, and all ate the same spiritual food. Does that include children? It must. No. It says all. And all drank the same spiritual drink. That's all. Everybody. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So the children passed through the sea, right? Mm-hmm. Did the children eat the food? Apparently. Apparently. Did the children drink from the rock? Uh, that uh, Moses' rod tapped on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Uh, yet, do many of the children eat the Lord's Supper? No, not really. Not really. They're often kept from participating. Uh, and uh, the, the, they often kept from participating in the meal that points back to the experience of the Hebrew children. That means the sons and the daughters who conquered the land of Canaan after their parents had died in the wilderness because of their lack of faith. I hope one day we will have churches that eat real bread. Well, we already kind of got that done at Christ Church, at least. And drink real wine, maybe one day. And we'll have children that invite the children of the covenant to participate in the supper. I think the Lord's looking favor on us with that, too. Okay. How would you begin to do that? Do what? Which point? Start doing it right, in your opinion. Slowly. And a little bit at a time. A little bit of alcohol. Uh, no, that's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. No. No. One, one teaching at a time. One slight shift or movement at a time. Uh, huh? Like, What's the next step? Bigger cups? I don't know if we'll be able to logistically do bigger cups and be able to pass them around. Um, the next step, at least with the Lord's Supper, as far as the elements are concerned, is... Uh, doing something that we did similarly with this whole baptism thing is the the elders are going to have to, you know, Pastor Brand's going to have to take it before the elders to approve even teaching on this or not. And so then it would be taught, and then, you know, eventually, you know, I'm not even sure if it would even come to a a members meeting like the baptism thing did, but there would have to be some agreement and, and at least a level of understanding from teaching as to why we do this. And that's why I'm teaching y'all this today. Y'all, the kids, y'all, by the time y'all are my age, y'all will have understood this stuff and y'all be good to go. But anyway, so any change in church that you make that's, that's systemic and it's very different, you have to lead people through it. Just like Moses led the people through the wilderness, one step at a time, it's going to take a little while. So I think just in us enjoying big pieces of bread and understanding that it's a celebration, You notice over the last couple of weeks that Pastor Kirk's been telling us, hey, y'all need to talk and have conversations and, you know, don't be so solemn and quiet. Well, that's a part of that, too. Like, do you talk at celebrations? Yes, it's often excruciatingly loud at celebrations. Yeah, because everybody's having fun and having a good time. So that's what we're trying to cultivate. So a little at a time. And one day, Lord willing, uh, we'll be able to uh, faithfully administer all these things. Okay, so... As a side note, um, I know that's none of you, but maybe it's folks that listen on this recording. Some people are appalled by the idea of wine at communion. Horrible, horrible. You know, because wine is, has alcohol in it. It's an alcoholic beverage. And they're like, oh, wine, alcohol should never be served in the church. Because liquor is always off limits. Um, anybody who thinks that should really consider Deuteronomy 14, 26. Which not only suggested, but commanded upon every family in Israel, not only the celebration of the tithe, but uh, also uh, commands them to drink wine. Don't believe me? I'll read it. And God says, and spend your money for whatever you desire. Oxen, or sheep, or wine, or strong drink. Strong drink is, is beer. Isn't that interesting? Whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice. You and your household children. Yes. There you go. It's a command. God literally told Israel, hey, when you celebrate, when you celebrate the Passover, you celebrate the Lord's Supper, when you celebrate your festivals and feasts, spend the money for whatever you desire. He even lists, and there could have been a million things he could have suggested to buy with whatever you desire for the celebration. But he specifically mentions oxen or sheep as meat, as food, Mm. or wine, or strong drink. Whatever you you want to eat, whatever your appetite craves. Can Can I spend my Christmas money? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So yes, so that's the command literally to, one part of it, to drink wine at these celebrations. Okay, Uh, And the next verse required the Israelites to invite the Levite priests to the celebration. Hey, don't leave the pastors out, let us come too. Uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe some commentators think that they uh, that these people could turn wine into grape juice, like magically or something, the way that Jesus turned water to wine in John two. I know, like the first thing Jesus does, the first miracle is he turned water into wine. Grape juice? No oh. joke. No <laughs> joke. No way. It, it, that wasn't even a thing yet. So, <clears throat> do I? Oh, well, they, they failed miserably. Jesus failed miserably, too, because he drank his own wine. Some of the so. apostles get drunk at that party? What, uh, what party? Um, that party that they turned water into wine, because they ran out of wine. Well, just because they ran out of wine doesn't necessarily mean they got drunk. I'm sure there were some drunk folks there, but I doubt the disciples were. I don't know. They don't really say. Uh, I would hope not. Uh, but you do drink enough to enjoy yourself, right? Mm. Right. Take my word for it. Anyway, so... Uh, it's very interesting. Like, we're commanded to drink wine. And there's no concept of grape juice outside of, whenever it says wine, it really means wine. So, okay. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the church and discipline before we stop here. Uh, God's law applies to all spheres of life, right? Amen. Yeah, there's no area of life that can stand up and proclaim its independence from God's law. Or if it does, it has made a false claim. And the church is an agency of dominion. It's not the only one, but it's one of many. And because it's an agency of dominion, like the family, like the civil government, it has a law structure. There are sets of laws which it may govern. And it's, the church stands or falls in terms of its commitment to God's law. Now, there's one thing that I have to mention regarding this, and I've said it before. Any type of government that is legitimate, God-ordained government always starts with self-government. Governing of yourself. That means that no human institution, including the church can succeed in bringing its own members into conformity with God's law by means of just coercion alone. Follow God's law now. Or put a gun to somebody's head. Follow God's law. Does that work? No. No. And besides, the pastors can't keep up with all that anyway. Can elders keep up with every single decision that every member makes at any given point in their lives to try to manage it and make sure they follow God's law? No, there's no way. There's too many decisions to be made that are outside the view of a pastor and elder. So whether it's the family, whether it's the church or the civil government, here's the goal. We want in every sphere of life uh, to put self-government in the place of bureaucratic, centralized government. Okay, What we need is self-governing individuals who fear God and devote all that they have individually to subduing the law of sin in their own lives. Okay, we have to have the attitude that Paul has in Romans 7, verse 23. He says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So in every institution, every sphere, we need Christians to devote themselves wholeheartedly to discovering God's laws and sharing their findings of what they have in the Bible uh, in their own God-given callings so that self-disciplined men and self-disciplined women can begin to subdue their own bodies and subdue their own environments, their own spheres of sovereignty. And when it comes to the sphere of the church, the church's primary way of disciplining its members is the preaching of the whole counsel of God. Preaching. Preaching the Word. That's the primary way of discipline in the church. Preaching all the Bible for all of life. You know, nothing of any lasting value is going to come about in church courts, formal church courts, if the, the preacher and the ministers aren't constantly preaching the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And so church courts and appeals courts, uh, you know, judging from a higher place of sovereignty isn't going to do anything for the kingdom of God if the pastors and the elders aren't helping the congregation to become more aware of their own personal responsibilities before God and to conform their lives to God's revealed standards found in Scripture, okay? Now, how many of y'all know, how many of y'all knew that the church is supposed to have church courts? Any of y'all heard of that before? Yeah. Now, at Christ Church, we do have a, a, a sort of church court. Um, it's our elder board, right? Our elders, um, they hear cases of, uh, of church members who maybe are in a certain a particular sin and they're not repenting and uh, there, are certain, um, there are certain things there to do in order to win that person back, restore them back. Uh, That acts as like a church court. Anytime someone is excommunicated from a church, that happens through the church court. Now, it doesn't look like what you would see on on TV, like a judge with a black robe on and a gavel and a jury and all that. It doesn't look like that exactly. But we do have uh, a group of elders that hear cases and determine verdicts. Um, And it's not the verdict of innocent or guilty, you're going to jail if you're guilty. No, it's different. We have the keys to the kingdom. So if uh, if someone is judged as being unrepentant and they're refusing, we went through all of the, the, the steps in Matthew 18 to win them to repentance, but they're still not, then the church can render a formal verdict to excommunicate them, to cast them out of the church uh, in an effort to restore them. So all that happens in church court, but none of that can happen without good, consistent, faithful preaching of the word. <clears throat> so... God, in his wisdom, he has ordained the church to have ministers of justice in the church, right alongside the pastors preaching the word. So Paul, once again, uh, going back to Corinthians, uh, Paul warned the members of the church in Corinth that they should not take their disputes with one another to secular courts. That's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 2 and 3, says this. It says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? You remember what I said earlier about the disciples at the Lord's Supper table? What were they supposed to be doing? Sitting and doing what? Judging. Judging. Exactly. This." These two passages are connected. Luke 22 and 1 Corinthians 6 are connected to each other. Here, Paul is echoing what Jesus said at the Lord's Supper, that they're going to sit on thrones of judgment in his kingdoms. And Christians are to be the ones to hand down godly judgment and to hand down true justice the best. They need to be the best at it, right? Uh, Because that's who God chose to rule the world. He chose his his uh, faithful Christians, his church, to rule the world. And so that's why it's all the more important that we need as Christians to begin practicing godly discipline in uh, the institutional setting through formal church courts. Now, Paul says that that is how we're going to get our training to rule over bigger and better things. Like, How are we going to rule the world? How's God even going to give us the world if we can't even wake up on time in the morning? Right? You think God is going to give us higher thrones to judge the world if we can't even judge our own disputes between two members in the church and they have to go to a secular court to render a verdict and to settle things out? No way. God's not going to give us the whole world if we act like that. No, we have to be self-disciplined under God. We have to have self-government. Okay, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 5, he continues. He says, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? This is really sad. The Corinthian church members were constantly taking each other to court and trying to sue each other. And it's not, it wasn't a Christian court either. This was a pagan court with an, unbelieving, with an unbelieving jury, unbelieving judges, unbelieving pagan law. And Paul says that this is a terrible witness to the power and the authority of the church. And it's a terrible witness to the authority of King Jesus in this world. And Paul says that instead of making look Jesus bad to the rest, making him look bad to the rest of the world, wouldn't it be better to be defrauded of your money? Just you, I'd rather you take the loss than to take this to a secular court and make the kingdom of God look like it's it's not doing anything. Uh, wouldn't it have been better to take the loss monetary, monetarily than to submit to the judgments of these pagan representatives of a pagan state? So, you know, Christians are, to, are they supposed to submit themselves to whose law first? God's law, right? Not to the law of Caesar. And that law of God is supposed to be administered by another Christian who is wise in the law, who has wisdom in the law. And so they were supposed to bring themselves under God's law rules so that they can expand their influence and eventually judge not only men, but judge angels. How can we judge angels if we can't even settle our own disputes? Can't do it. So let's say there's a dispute between you and your brother in Christ, right? Um, how do you start the process of settling the dispute? How do you do that? Well, in other words, how do we start lawful church discipline? Repent. Huh? You repent make restitution. Right. We'll get to all that. Yeah, you're, we're, we're jumping way ahead. Let me, let me unpack some things first. We'll probably talk about this more next week. Uh, Matthew 18 <laughs> is, is one of the go-to passages to, to find out how church discipline works and the steps involved. Yes, sir? Huh? Are you asking me like, a question on how to do it? No, well, I'm, uh, rhetorically. I'm not actually asking for it to be answered right now. Sorry. <laughs> but you can tell me. Tell me real quick. First, uh, you're talking one-on-one uh-huh. with the group and with the pastor. Uh-huh. The church. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so Matthew 18:15 says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So here's the first step, okay? Think about this. If the dispute is big enough to have a trial by the church courts, then it must at least be worth, first of all, to have a man-to-man discussion about it beforehand, right? To have a man-to-man confrontation. That way, the sin may be able to be dealt with long before it gets to the whole church court system, okay? Right? So that's step one, all right? Here's step two. What if the person that you're confronting, you go to them one-on-one, and they don't want to listen to a complaint about themselves. They don't want to listen to this. Well, Jesus says this in verse 16. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, now what's he saying? Well, now go confront them with two or three witnesses. So this is actually just a restatement of Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or wrongdoing uh, in connection with any offense that he has committed. I saw your hand up. I'm going to get to you in a second. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. All right, so what's he telling us here? Well, besides telling us the next step in the church discipline process, this, this passage in Matthew is implying something else. What's implying? This is a very obvious point. Y'all probably just n- know it, but well, the Old Testament law still applies today. Yeah. <laughs> See, Jesus is echoing it all over again. So we don't throw the law out in the New Testament. The law structure is exactly the same. So we can go to the Old Testament in this day and age, and we can use it to base our judgments and our processes of law from. Uh, the law isn't abrogated. Okay. Now, next step before we stop. Uh, Matthew eighteen seventeen. If he still refuses to listen, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Wow. So even if if he doesn't listen even to the church, the church is supposed to put him out of fellowship and excommunicate him. And now he is to be considered by that church to be a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, consider him... Not to be a Christian. That's what they. That's what God is uh, telling us to do. And don't have any fellowship with Him until He repents. Wow, to be a tax collector, we may we would be, be like, oh, who cares? Big deal. But we have to understand uh, how horrible of a consequence that is. You know, that's like being an IRS agent today, right? <laughs> nobody, nobody, I know, dun, dun, dun. Nobody likes you. No, and and that was the same in Corinth, in Jerusalem, among the Greeks and the Hebrews. No public official was more hated and resented and looked down upon than the tax collector. And that's how we should view an excommunicated church member, as the bottom of the barrel of society, as the scum of the earth, right? Now, and that's not because we hate them, right? No, it's because we love them that we refuse to associate with them. Now, see, the world has this backwards. The world would say, oh, that's so hateful. No, it's not hateful. No, they, they need to be restored. We would love for them to be restored back into fellowship. But we can't pretend that everything's okay and that they're in fellowship with us if they're blatantly sinning against the church and against uh, the, their its head, Jesus Christ. We can't do that. And so, um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so if they don't refuse to listen to you one-on-one, you bring a couple of witnesses with you. If they refuse even to hear the two witnesses along with yourself, then you take it to the elder board, to the church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then you put them out of fellowship with the hopes and prayers that they'll come back and repent. Okay. Now, these days, it's really hard to understand how bad excommunication is. Why is that? Jesus you just go find another church? There's another church down the street who does not care at all that you've been excommunicated from this one. Actually, they'll be more open to welcoming you into their church. Uh, there used to be an old saying that says, there is no salvation outside the church. Nobody believes that anymore. But it's true. With a church in every corner, men have felt free to leave any church threatening them with discipline. Uh, they're going to walk down the street and be welcomed with open arms. And so this, the concept of the majesty of God's law, that's been abandoned. That's been left behind. Uh, and the idea of the sovereignty of God, the threat of excommunication, and the concept of meaningful, real church discipline have all been forgotten. So what is the church like now? It's like a country club. It's like a social club. And it's, like, it's become like a TED Talk society. Uh, it's become a place for making business deals with other people and, and dating services for teenagers and youth groups. It's become a free nursery for parents who want Sunday morning off. And they can go drop their kids off in the back and they can play Xbox all morning during church. Um, it's become a refuge from the conflicts that are usually associated with the world's affairs. And we have a responsibility to repair these ruins. That's why I'm teaching this class. You know, uh, you're learning really what, is, uh, what the church should be. And you're learning just by listening to this class and continuing to have fellowship with other church members. You're learning how to discern the body and how to live for the Lord as a member of the church. And all that, of course, starts with not me governing you, because I can't govern every decision you make, but it starts with self-government. And I, I pray that we do that.